This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 32, Collier Heights. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. So if you're listening to this on the day it is released, I am in Savannah, Georgia for the weekend. It's my second time there. And although I love exploring new places, I think I just needed a vacation where I've already been there. (laughs) So I've already done the major touristy stuff. I don't have a full itinerary. Um, I think we're going to do some kayaking and then just relax. So I'm excited to share some photos and history um, from the oldest city in Georgia. And if you're into that kind of stuff, I think I'll be doing it on Instagram so you can come and follow along. This week, I wanted to do another neighborhood episode, and hopefully one that you're not as familiar with and want to go explore. My connection with Collier Heights begins many, many years ago in sort of a weird way, an estate sale. Now, if you've never been to an estate sale, it's very hard to explain the excitement of a good one. I I mean, it's probably its own weird subculture, um, but... It is usually a case of an elderly person that has passed away and then their family is kind of selling all of the contents of their home. There's clothes and um, furniture and stuff like that. So I used to go to them a lot, um, especially in the past, and I never really thought about where I was going. So I would just put in the address, you know, wherever it took me. It, It was an easy way to explore new parts of Atlanta, but it wasn't very deliberate. So for this particular sale, I plug in the address and the GPS, don't think too much about it, And as I pull into Collier Heights, I immediately get the mid-century vibes. And I am a Mad Men aficionado. I think I've watched the season three times from start to finish, which is probably a little excessive. Um, But I love that, you know, 1950s, 1960s style. So I already love the neighborhood going in there. And then when I went into the house, I was just blown away. This was like mid-century masterpiece. Um, I could not tell you where it is I just don't remember, which it sucks. Uh, but the basement, I'll never forget. It was yellow, black, and white. And everything was leather. Uh, it had the fake plants, the water feature. And it just looked like a place that a lot of fun parties had taken place. There was also upstairs in the hallway closet was full of fur coats. So when you go to a sale, sometimes you just get this impression whether it's right or wrong about the person that used to live there and I created this story that the woman that lived here was um, very stylish and threw really great parties. Funny enough as I learned about the history of Collier Heights I realized that this assumption of style and great parties wasn't really too far off. First let's orient ourselves. The neighborhood today is bordered on every side by a major road. 285 is to the west, I-20 is to the south, Hamilton Holmes is to the east, and last but not least, Donnelly Hollowell is to the north. So let me just sidetrack for a second and express that I'm not positive when they renamed Bankhead Highway after the noted civil rights attorney, but I have yet to meet one person that does not still call this Bankhead Highway. Uh, But in my research, I learned that even before it was Bankhead, the road had another name, Mason Turner's Ferry Road. From 1844 to 1897, there was a ferry that ran across the Chattahoochee at the spot where the road crosses it now. This land was dispersed as part of the 1821 land lottery, and I'm not exactly sure which white man it was deeded to, but we do have records of some early family names associated with the land. The first are the Also Brooks. There's very little written family history. 
I did find a genealogy page that someone created, but the bulk of information is really on the patriarch of the family, and this is before they moved to the area. They lived in another part of Georgia. But what we do have is a cemetery. And I'm way too excited to find out that I was going to have a cemetery in this episode. Also, Brooke Family Cemetery is an abandoned um, small plot with about 11 graves, and it's sandwiched between two private homes on Jones Road. Another early name is Seaborn Osborne. So let's just take a minute to really take that name in because it's a doozy. But if it sounds familiar, it's because there's still a road in Collier Heights called Osborne Road. So now you know where that came from. All I found in a quick search is that the Osborns are buried in Oakland Cemetery and Seaborn was listed as a jailer. Another road name that still lingers is Old No. It's named for Joseph Wilson Oldno and his family, and this is one of the earliest laid roads in the neighborhood. These landlots remained as forest or farmland well into the 1930s, which is rare in relation to the other neighborhood histories. Now, this doesn't mean no one was living there. There was a first push for development in the 1910s, and these are small bungalows that were built for white Atlantans. Before we keep going, let me introduce the evolution of Black Atlanta to the west side. Around 1919, a Texan named Heman Perry develops the first planned African-American suburb in the city of Atlanta. And I hope to do an episode on this one day, but I'm going to mention Perry and Washington Park because its connections to the neighborhood that would come are very strong. Perry also established Citizens Trust Bank in 1921, um, which was actually on Auburn Avenue, but that bank would come into play later for Collier Heights. I'm going to talk about something that I brought up in the Capitol View episode, but the housing shortage in Atlanta after World War II was a very serious problem. Returning white GIs are using um, their GI Bill to purchase homes in the suburbs, and this is the same time in history that construction of U.S. highways explodes. These highways are taking you further out to those suburban neighborhoods, and then living in the city center begins to become just not desirable, and then the cities start to expand. Much of this suburbanation was white, but Black Atlantans did also make the move as well. The issue of African-American housing shortage was so extreme, and it really reached critical levels at this time. And it was white flight from some of these closer-to-town neighborhoods that opened the door for African-Americans to join in on the suburban movement. And that turn of events, if you will, is how Collier Heights was born. In the U.S., this wave of suburbanation begins with the National Housing Act, which is passed in 1934, so during the Depression. And this New Deal program basically halts the tide of bank mortgage foreclosures. And then it creates the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA. And the idea is to make housing and home mortgages more affordable and available to Americans. After World War II ends, the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944 is passed. Most of us just call that the GI Bill. But this bill provided benefits to returning veterans, and among one of those benefits is low-interest loans to buy a home. And this, again, is probably its own episode, but the GI Bill was inherently discriminatory. It was not written explicitly in that way, but what they did is that the federal government left it up to local government and municipalities to enforce. So you can imagine how that policy was enforced in places like Atlanta. To give you an idea, out of 67,000 GI mortgages that were taken out, less than 100 were taken by non-whites. 
In the same year, 1944, the Federal Highway Act passes, which agrees on subsidizing the cost of highways and feeder roads all across the country. And the city of Atlanta at the same time uh, commissions the Lochner Report, which I briefly mentioned in the Summer Hill episode. But this report decided where these highways would go. And overwhelmingly, they went through African-American neighborhoods. So imagine 1944 in Atlanta for one minute. There's a boom in population, returning servicemen. There's a housing shortage for all people, more severe for those who are black. Now throw in the construction of highways that are encroaching and destroying black neighborhoods. There is literally nowhere for black Atlantans to go, and no one is helping them. The white power structure of Atlanta does not have these issues high up on their agenda. Hence, in 1946, the Atlanta Urban League establishes a temporary coordinating committee on housing. So the Urban League um, was actually founded in 1920 to support African-American families that had been moving into Atlanta with housing, employment, health care, etc. But this new housing committee that started had a specific purpose and a plan. It was headed by W.H. Aiken. They called him Chief Aiken. Uh, he knew, well, they all knew, the danger of African-Americans purchasing home in white neighborhoods. So if you haven't listened to the Colombians episode, this gives you an idea of the life-threatening risk that was involved in doing that. This committee determined that almost 5,000 new housing units were needed to address the shortage for Black Atlanta. They established a land committee, basically tasked with finding land. They had a finance committee um, that was headed by J.P. Whitaker of Atlanta Mutual, and that was tasked with finding financing. So they just, you know, kind of divided and conquered and came up with a plan. Now, this temporary courting committee was really popular and accepted with white leadership. They were eventually turned into an official government agency called the Atlanta Housing Council, and their task was African-American housing issues, basically. The council determined that six acres would be used for, quote, peaceful black development, end quote, and at that time, Collier Heights was not part of this plan. In 1952, Mayor Hartsfield expands the city and annexes the area of Collier Heights. At the same time, he signs an executive order that creates the Westside Mutual Development Committee. Sorry, these names are so long. Um, I think they call it WSMDC. And this committee, and really all of these organizations that are forming, they're main purpose is to make the white population of the west side of Atlanta feel comfortable. Truly, I say this because its purpose was listed as, quote, the orderly and harmonious development of the west side, end quote. And this time, Collier Heights was included as part of this plan. Different African-American businessmen set out to purchase parcels of land. So we have um, Quentin V. Williamson scouts and purchases 200 acres in Collier Heights. This is a great time to explain what is unique about Collier Heights. The original total area was much, much bigger than what we know today. But the construction of I-20 and I-285 split the neighborhood into four compartments. And only one compartment is what we call Collier Heights today. And the name actually came later on. It's really a collection of 55 different subdivisions. And each subdivision or was not all of them, but most were built by different people. Um, There's a few white developers in there as well. But later it would collectively be called Collier Heights. Now the first subdivision that was built for African Americans there was called Crestwood Forest. As I said earlier, this was originally a white neighborhood, and it still was in the 1950s when this black development began. 
the Collier Heights Civic Club formed by white homeowners in response to concerns over black encroachment. The majority of white residents were living in Baker Ridge, Collier Drive, Dale Creek Drive. If you look at a map, it's just a little grouping of roads. And all in all, it's about 75 families. So the African-American-run WSMDC mailed a letter to these homeowners asking them kind of like a poll. A, do you want to sell your home to a black family? B, you know, do you not? And the responses came in. About 50 wanted the neighborhood to remain white and about 28 would sell to African-Americans. There is so much primary source material um, concerning this course of events, like really crazy stuff. There's letters from white widows in the neighborhood lamenting to Mayor Hartsfield that the, quote, colored are moving in and taking over schools, and now whites have to walk or travel further. I'm really compressing this part of the history just for the sake of time, but I implore you to go read this. Um, it's, it's not that long ago, so that's kind of when you're reading it, it helps you understand how far we've come and yet how not far we've come. So over a few-year period, these white families would indeed sell their homes and leave in what we call white flight, and the neighborhood becomes kind of the black mecca of Atlanta neighborhoods that we know it today. This is one of the first upper-middle-class black neighborhoods to be built in Atlanta during segregation, and it was created, purchased, planned, financed almost solely by African Americans. This is such an incredible example of taking fate into your own hands and solving this housing shortage issue without waiting for the government or elected officials to do so. The Atlanta Daily World, which is a black newspaper, touted Collier Heights as the most prominent African-American residential area, and it was even mentioned in the New York Times and Time magazine. During this time of expansion, there are several churches and schools built in the neighborhood. Uh, St. Paul of the Cross Catholic Church was created in 1954, actually at the request of the Archdiocese in Savannah. And it was to serve the needs of the growing African-American Catholics in Atlanta. So the first parishioners actually came from Our Lady of Lourdes, which is on Boulevard now, because that was the only Catholic church for black Atlantans. So they kind of borrowed a few parishioners, uh, grew their congregation. And St. Paul actually had an elementary school, which was the only school for residents in the Collier Heights neighborhood. When 285 came to town, the church property had to move, but it's still in existence today. Another church, Radcliffe Presbyterian, was designed in 1958 by one of the first prominent black architects in Georgia, Edward Miller. And we talked about this in the episode on Big Bethel and Wheat Street, but a church building in the black community is always so much more than just a church. And I tend to associate that with the distant past, right, like a hundred years ago. But it was great for me to see that even in the 1950s, Radcliffe was serving as one of the only social gathering spots available to the community. Vaseline Usher Elementary was first known as Drexel High School, and it was actually commissioned by the Catholic Archdiocese of Atlanta in 1962. So this would make it the only African-American Catholic school in Atlanta, um, but it would only stay open for a few years. Closing in 1967 because of desegregation, it would later be run as an elementary school by the Atlanta public school system, and then it was named its current name in 1992. You also have Frederick Douglass High, which was built in 1962. That was originally a vocational school called Simpson Hightower High, um, but then it turned to a regular curriculum later. I can't finish this episode without talking about some of the homes here, because to me, that's the greatest tangible gift that Collier Heights gives us. 
There are so many notable ones. There is an Asian-inspired ranch on Collier Drive. There's a very well-known roundhouse, as in it's shaped round. Um, that was home to Earl and Sarah Starling. Earl was a principal, educator, and music director, and I think Sarah was an author. Many of the well-known homes in Collier Heights were designed by J.W. Robinson, who, although graduated with a degree in architecture, he found it almost impossible to find a job in his field during segregation. He ended up teaching high school at Booker T. Washington, um, and because you did not need an architecture license to develop a private home, he went on to design more than 200 houses for Atlanta's African-American community. He finally got his license in 1970 and established his own firm, which still exists today, and Robinson himself lived in Collier Heights. Another architect in residence in the neighborhood was Edward Miller. I mentioned him earlier. He was the first black architect to practice in Georgia, and his firm was pretty much the only avenue that young black architects had where they could get experience before taking their license exams. Probably the most known legacy of Collier Heights is the people who live there. It's very much a roll call of every influential Black Atlantan in history. Ralph David Abernathy, Herman Russell, developer and construction firm owner, Asa Yancey, the first Black doctor at Grady and first Black medical faculty at Emory, Jasmine Guy, Howard Baugh, who was um, one of Atlanta's first Black police officers, Geneva Hogabrooks from last week's episode, Donald Hallwell, Martin and Alberta King, the parents of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Lorimore Milton, he was CEO of Citizens Trust Bank. Citizens Trust Bank um, definitely provided the majority of home loans for these residents to purchase these homes. And guys, this is just some of the people that live there. And even better is that almost all of these homes are still there. When I mentioned the amazing basement, I saw that estate sale all of these homes had incredible rec rooms in the basement. There are great articles on the neighborhood. I'm going to put some links in the show notes so you can see some of the photos. The neighborhood parties of Collier Heights are legendary, but they were also during segregated Atlanta, the only places that African-Americans could freely gather and socialize. There are photos of Dr. King hanging out in Herman Russell's home. There's a story about how impressed Richard Nixon was when he visited Daddy King's modern ranch house. So that, my friends, is the quick history of Collier Heights. I hope I've convinced you to check it out. And if you go and take pictures, please make sure to share them with me. Hashtag Archive Atlanta. Thank you for listening this week. Thank you for your comments and reviews and ratings. Last week, I let the fifth graders say goodbye, but I don't want to leave out my awesome fourth graders from career day. So they're doing the send-off this week, and I will see you guys next week. This is Clarkville Elementary!